You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and I can't believe that 2024 marks 10 years of podcasting. Over the last decade, I have had the pleasure of talking with hundreds upon hundreds of passionate outdoors men and women who share the same excitement for hunting as I do. Whether you hunt public lands or private property, shoot traditional archery equipment or high-powered rifles, we all have one thing in common. And that's our love for the great outdoors. This year, I plan on continuing that tradition and bringing educational and entertaining content to your ears. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you all have the best seasons of your life. Good vibes in, good vibes out. Check one, two, ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this from a very snowy Iowa, I'm sitting here in my office and I think we've had maybe eight inches and they're predicting another three inches maybe. So, and, but it's starting to snow or starting, the wind's starting to pick up and it doesn't look like it's going to be, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to just stack up. I think it's going to start to drift. That's going to make travel a little crazy. Now, I have to uh, give a little public service announcement here. I bought a muzzleloader, right? Everybody knows that. I went to go sight it in the other day, and I need I needed to go ahead and do a little bit more work sighting it in. Now, here's, here's the thing. I'm not going to be able to go late season hunting this year. There, uh, I believe tomorrow is the 10th, and that is the last day of late season, the last day of the season uh, for Iowa. And unfortunately, due to the family schedule, unfortunately, due to, I, I would also probably say my lack of being prepared, uh, I didn't really put it on the calendar, but we've got family it, we had family events we had christmases we had new year's eve events we got wrestling tournaments like so life just kind of got away and i i, I prioritized f- 
family over hunting. And so I had an MRI. Let's see, this is going to be released on a Wednesday. So I had an MRI on Monday. My shoulder hurts like a SOB. And, uh, and so I, I want to know if I have a torn ligament in my shoulder. It hurts every day. And I think if you follow me on social, you will see that. Now, my goal is to be a bow hunter, right? And so I wanted to take care of this early on in this year. Uh, if I do need to have surgery, then I want to make sure that I get it done early enough to where I can rehab it and start shooting my bow again in a handful of months, uh, start working on my strength, start getting everything, you know, back to normal before I would say June, July, uh, based off of all the th stuff that I've read, it takes like a full six months to fully rehab. And then you have to start strength, your, your strength exercises again. And so the whole goal is for me to get back into compound bow 70 pounds i might have to drop down for a little bit in order to get you know to to start shooting and then build that strength up build that strength up uh, until i can get back to 70 i'm confident in that if that's the road that that happens um, and then i'm guessing i'm going to need some kind of physical therapy after the surgery but that's what is on my mind right now that's kind of what's on my schedule and uh unfortunately the late season just did not happen for me i'm i don't know i'm I'm bummed, but at the same time, that's that's life, man. All right, today, on today's episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles, we are going to talk with Aaron Warbritton. You guys know who he is, the hunting public, and we're going to talk about the direction hunting is going in North America. We talk about access. We talk about uh, rules and regulations. We talk about the hunting culture. We talk about gear like cellular trail cameras, crossbows, things like that. And the overall direction and whether we think it is good or bad, uh, the direction that hunting is going here in North America. And I, dude, I had an absolute blast talking with him. Uh, his, his thoughts are very well calculated. It's a great conversation, almost an excellent conversation, I would say. And uh, so I would definitely recommend sharing this episode with any friends or family members who might also be interested in the, the hunting community, the hunting culture in North America, so forth and so on. So before I do get into today's episode, though, we're going to do a quick commercial block. If you're looking for a saddle or to jump into the saddle game, go check out Tethered, uh, Tethered's Saddles. They have saddle hunting accessories, saddles, platforms, everything you need to hop on that saddle hunting, uh, that saddle hunting train. And I must say, it is worth it. So go read up on uh, tetherednation.com, wasparchery.com, discount code NFC20. I know that the seasons are winding down, but it's never too early to get prepared for the next season. Go check out Wasp's uh, lineup of fixed and mechanical broadheads, wasparchery.com, vortexoptics.com. If you want the, in my opinion, best binocular or optic for hunting, you need to go check out vortexoptics.com. Uh, they have binoculars spotting scopes range finders red dots rifle scopes anything really uh then they have it for you uh, vortexoptics.com 
and uh, go check out Vortex's uh, apparel line as well. Code Blue Sense, man, I've had nothing, you know, that that, that Code Blue rope-a-dope system that I used all fall, man, I'm very happy with the results of that. I put a trail camera over this rope-a-dope mock scrape type setup, and I had a lot of deer come and visit that uh, that rope-a-dope and so that allowed me to get an inventory of all of the deer that are on this property and or all the properties that I hunt and so I'm very happy with that other than that uh, if you are interested in any type of scent elimination sprays synthetic in uh, real deer sense go check out uh, codebluesense.com I do have a discount code NFC20 and that is going to allow you to uh, take, uh, get 20% off NFC two zero, uh, the woodman's pal, man, I'll tell you this, man, I've used the crap out of that thing. It is a machete. It's uh, what they call a habitat tool, uh, hacking, hacking trees, hacking, uh, shooting lanes, hacking, uh, trail camera locations, clearing out access routes, uh, even stuff around the house or the farm. Uh, or the hunting property uh, go check out woodmanspal.com it is a made in america product and it, they've been around since the 40s so these guys are legit so woodmanspal.com last but not least huntworth i know that the and i said this before but i know that the seasons are winding down for many of us okay and, and sometimes you know even some places in uh we're, we're sitting here in january southern states are peak rut right now and so again there's no, there's no early, it's not early enough to get prepared for the next, it's never too early, I guess that's what I want to say, to be prepared for the upcoming season. Go to Huntworth, uh, Huntworth's website, take a look at all of the options that these guys, I'm, I'm a huge fan of their products, not, and, and for more than just the product itself, but the price point, like, it, I would put their stuff up against some of the most elite brands of hunting apparel on the market, hunting camo or whatever you want to call it, uh, hunting gear on the market. I'd, I'd put Huntworth up against that. Their heat boost technology that they have, uh, it really does keep you warm when it's cold outside and it keeps you cool when it's hot, right? And so they have an entire lineup and in my opinion, uh, along with the elite brands, they have some of the best layering systems at a more affordable cost. So go check out Huntworth and uh, they, they're usually running discount codes almost all the time. And so go to their, their social pages and uh, take advantage of some of the, the discounts that they're, they're coming, uh, coming with. So, all right, commercials are done. Do me a huge favor, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, wherever you download uh, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast or listen to any of the Sportsman's Empire podcast network. Please go leave a five-star review. Let everybody know that this is a badass podcast uh, and it's it's worth something, right? Whether that's for entertainment purposes, whether that's for educational purposes. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And last but not least, man, we got to have good vibes, right? So let's get into today's episode with Aaron Warbritton of The Hunting Public. Three, two, one. All right, welcome to the next episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today I am joined by Mr. Aaron Warbritton. Aaron, man, how you doing? Doing well, buddy. Hey, just 
Surviving winter. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, now I'm gonna say I'm gonna tell you something. I I love this video you put out. I believe it, it's it's of your stepson shooting. Was this his first deer ever? Yeah. Okay. And how hyped both of you got after that <laughs> went down? I was like, I I watched that video online, and I almost was like. I could have flipped over a car. I was so jacked at that moment. Just like, because that is the raw, that's the realest, rawest emotion that hunters have. And especially when um, it's a kid who you obviously love and support in his hunting journey. And and just th- that, that amount of emotion, dude, it got me fired up. Yeah, man, it'll be hard for me to top that one. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty pretty wild. And I, w- there was a lot that went into that. You know, it wasn't – you see sometimes these youth hunts or a mentor and mentee hunt, if you will, when they take somebody out and they put them in a blind and they shoot an animal like within the first hour or so. Yeah. And you don't always see that reaction. But the recipe just came together for right. us because right. he – He'd spent, he had went multiple times with me over the years bow hunting and then his turkey hunted with me several times, just, you know, tagging along, not packing a weapon or anything. And then when he finally had a chance to harvest his first deer this fall, it took like several times before we, we got one, Mm -hmm. you know, and he, he actually missed a doe earlier in the fall and was like, he was upset, but he was like ready to go yeah so walking all the way back to the truck that night he's like i'm gonna practice when i get home and we're gonna we're gonna shoot at the box before i go to school every day this next week and the next time we get to go i'm gonna drop him yeah and like he was just fired up man yeah um so i it all just came together at that point where we had we had both put in some work up to that point to get that deer and then when he when he got him it was like we we were just gonna ha- be happy with a doe, a yeah. spike. It didn't matter. I mean, he was ready to shoot whatever. And then this nice buck comes along, and yeah, we just lost it. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome, man. And I'll say this: as a parent, I've found that doing things a little bit harder, uh, throwing kids into scenarios where they're not successful immediately. And the, like the hand holding portion of it, kind of it, it's it's gone. It's on them. Uh, they they experience some failure. It makes those those times where you are successful that much sweeter. And I always wonder if kids who have been set up on deer, you know, for youth season, like on a food plot, and and you know deer's coming out, and you know they're going to get a shot, what the retention is of that type of hunting versus the the style where you have to go out and just earn it. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming that it's not good. Yeah. I mean, I have to put I have to rewire my brain completely whenever I go with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. You know, we probably we've been doing this so long at this point, guys like you and I that we take hunting pretty seriously when yeah. we go out there, you know from our gear to you know the conditions even the animals we decide to shoot or whatever so i got to rewire my brain completely when i'm going with him right and i i i had a great mentor in my dad that took me when i was a kid um 
and lots of people do have great mentors when they were kids but my dad was like he was the perfect one because he is not a good hunter at all <laughs> and he does not take it seriously like yeah. when we were when i was a kid he would take me he would take me whenever i wanted to go we would go until i got bored and he was usually getting bored about the same time and then we'd go to town and get donuts yeah and we ha we did that over and over and over again and didn't have success for sometimes even years yeah. before we finally got some. Like, I eventually killed my first turkey, and then four or five years later, I called in his first turkey for him. Oh, wow. But because I wanted to go, he would take me. Yeah. So we were both almost learning as we went, and I try to put myself back in that mindset whenever I'm taking right. miles. So I'm just worried about the safety aspect and – you know, I'll give him options like, okay, we can set up over here. Or we can go over here. Or we can set on the ground over here. Or we can just still hunt through the woods. I'm kind of like, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And then he'll kind of tell me a little bit and we'll talk a little bit. And then I will let him basically decide on what he wants to do. Right. Like where he wants to set all that. Right. And then I'm just concerned about the safety aspect mm -hmm. and, and trying to help him, you know, get a good shot in an animal. Right. This is, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I had to rewire my brain when I started taking my daughter out, uh, turkey hunting. And I was just like, you gotta, you gotta stop moving. You, cause, cause I was, when I, I was brought up turkey hunting where it was trial by fire. Like you, you got up against a tree, you sat still. If you moved tough shit off to the next bird. Right. And so I was trying to take what I've learned about turkey hunting and force it down a kid's throat like in the first time they've ever gone hunting, right? And I was trying to educate them so fast. And I think what ultimately happened is there, I, 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 instead of having a really fun, good experience, it was almost like stimulus, stimulus overload for her. There was just so much information coming at her at one time. She just kind of shut off and, and I'm guessing she didn't uh, enjoy it as much. But the second time we went out, it was more way laid back because I, I witnessed my own errors. And so I was just laid back. Hey, what do you think we should do? The turkeys are gobbling over here. Maybe we should go over here and kind of guide them through questioning of what they want to do. And so we got really close this past this past season and and that closeness and that struggle i think is motivating her for this upcoming season yep same with miles because yeah. he didn't kill a turkey last last spring yeah and and we did really good on the first two hunts we got in position and I, we we're hunting my family farm like yeah. we kill turkeys in a 20 by 40 spot up there just like a machine anymore yeah, yeah. um it wasn't like that when i was a kid but after hunting there for you know, my whole life at this point, we know where to go and sit. And yep. I could have took him up there, got him set up before daylight, been set up underneath the roosted bird and, and set up a decoy. And he probably could have shot one yeah. immediately. But instead we waited for like 30 minutes after daylight, the birds are on the ground. They're already headed to that spot. So we had to kind of sneak up there. You know, we just did, I, we didn't do it on my way. Right. We did it kind of his way and at right. his pace. But I did exactly what you're saying on the third hunt of our spring where we, we'd been several times and he had the safety off multiple times on gobblers. And then we got really close and had one drumming just out of sight. 
and he was getting fidgety and mm -hmm. you know he was getting uncomfortable i mean you know how it is mm -hmm. when you got a bird there and you know both legs are asleep and mm -hmm. your neck's cramped up and mm -hmm. you know your back hurts you just got to sit there and wait well i was doing the same thing you're talking about i was like miles you cannot move they'll see you mm -hmm. you just got to be patient and i wasn't i didn't realize like he's super uncomfortable he can't see the bird he can't even hear the drumming right I, uh, like i can and he doesn't know what's going on and he yeah. doesn't like this yeah so eventually i ended up sneaking up there and shooting the turkey and he was thrilled with that but i was looking at my options i was like well i can either make him sit here for another 45 minutes and be really uncomfortable and maybe get a shot or we can just crawl up there and spook or kill the thing right now right right yeah and that's what we ended up doing and he he liked that outcome way better but yeah. i was i i fell into the same trap yeah um because i'm the same way i'm an intense guy sometimes when it comes to hunting i'm like miles you can't move you know you got to keep your gun on your knee and he was yeah. taking it down and putting it in his lap and uh he wasn't liking that but. yeah well i'll say this like you know I, i've been hunting since i was 14 years old and i'll turn 44 that's like 30 some years of hunting for for myself yeah um and, and so I have to remember, it took me 30 years to gain all this knowledge about wildlife. And I cannot expect my children to pick that up in, in, in one season. Right. Yeah. So, man, that's awesome that, uh, uh, that, that you have brought the fire to, to those kids and, and, uh, and it sounds like they're, they're in it now they're they they want to be a part of the the lifestyle oh yeah anything hunting and fishing and we're we're going yep like that's my main priority anymore over getting stuff myself yeah is if we have the boys and they want to hunt or fish then that's what we're going to do right so man there's so many things we could unpack out of that 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 started that conversation but you know we're two guys. We are involved not only in the hunting community, but in the hunting industry. And I want to get your take. And this is going to be a very broad, vague question. And so I'll just, I'll just ask it. And that is the direction of hunting in North America. We'll just, we'll just have it broad. Does, is this a, are we going in the right direction uh, with hunting in North America? Uh, man, honestly, I don't really think so broadly. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of problems. I mean, we've been talking about some positive things here mm -hmm. with taking our kids and that's been the most rewarding thing that maybe I've ever done in hunting. Right. Uh, and I do, I do, see some hope on the horizon and things going on that are positive but overall no i don't i yeah. i think about 30 ish years ago maybe a little bit longer than that we kind of started down the wrong path if you will and at that time it would have been impossible for anybody to know right but uh now we are seeing the effects of that long term mm -hmm. and none of it really i don't know that any of it's getting better or worse i mean I, I we try to have these conversations and come up with solutions and try to put out content that helps and whatnot here and there but yeah i i don't i hate to be a debbie downer but it's right. not looking too good um 
be a little Unless specific. Unless we make some pretty serious changes. Yeah, uh, be specific on I, some of the things that concern you. I think overall trophy hunting is a problem in the way that we've done it. Now, I say all that because I love hunting mature bucks. Yeah. And you're the same way. Yep. I mean, we've been doing this our whole life, and I I love going out there and trying to figure these things out. Like, that's the that's one of the funnest parts of deer hunting for me. Right. Aside from taking the kids or mentoring somebody is figuring out how a mature buck uses the landscape and how they move and all that stuff. Like, it's so interesting to me. Right. But trophy hunting in general has created a, a market around it around you know i guess residential hunting land and all sorts of things that has man i it's it's not led us to a good place because the majority of the people in north america approve of hunting for food right but the majority of them like 70 some percent don't necessarily agree with trophy hunting maybe there's a way that we can balance the two i'm hopeful that there is because like i said i enjoy essentially trophy hunting i like hunting mature bucks right but at the same time you know our predecessors hunted more for food Mm -hmm. you know and this is just a couple hundred years ago we're not talking thousands of years ago this is just a couple hundred years ago that they hunted for food and it was always a sort of a social thing like tribes did it together they had hunting parties and whatnot and then you know back in the 60s 70s 80s 90s you had deer camp culture yep. you had folks that were hunting for big bucks but most of the time it was a group of people getting together for the social aspect of deer camp and going out there to have a positive experience in the woods and there was there was no talk about inches there was no talk about deer score there was very little talk about, you know, managing for mature bucks. Yeah. Now, granted, some of the land management stuff has been positive. Like, I, I look at some big land managers that their goal is to harvest mature bucks, and they have done some great things with wildlife habitat on their property. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's a positive thing that's come out of this that I didn't used to see. But as as time has went on, I realized, like, wow, if you have a lot of private land – and you you've got the drive and the motivation to improve the wildlife habitat on that property you have a lot of control over that Mm -hmm. and you can you can do things that are positive for the next generation and so on and so forth so i think that's a good thing the problem is to grow a mature buck on a piece of ground you you need other things other than habitat improvement and that is lack of access lack of human intrusion mm-hmm. what ends up happening there is they're just if everybody becomes a trophy hunter there's not enough big bucks to satisfy everybody there is enough deer in general right like we have a decent deer population but if everybody decides they're going to be a trophy hunter and shoot five six-year-old bucks then you end up with these scenarios where you got five or six guys with trail camera pictures of the same big buck and all five or six of those guys are hunting five or six different properties and they're all hunting for that particular deer. One person's going to maybe harvest it, uh, you know, and in order to get that deer on your property, you really need not be there very much. Right. 
And the more property you have, the higher your odds of keeping that deer on that property where you can kill it. Right. So where does that lead that? I know I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole here, but no. that essentially leads to less access for, for, so it's almost like if we're going to do an equation here, it would be the number of acres a single hunter requires is larger than what it used yep. to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And it used to be universally more spread out across the landscape. Right. So you would take a, a county per se back in the days when, when permission was easy to get. And when people weren't focused on that thing that we've just talked about, mm -hmm. they were just focused on having a positive experience and seeing some deer. Well, then you put, you put a thousand people in a county and they're evenly distributed all over the place. Everybody has positive experiences, right? Their goals and their expectations are lower than they they are now, um, and they ultimately had more ground to run around on, yeah, and share with one another. Now you look at that thousand people in that county, and there's one six hundred acre public area in the corner of it. That's where the majority of the people are hunting because they don't have access to the rest of it like they used to. Right. It's either they they I mean you know it's a money game. Yep. You've got to. You've got to have money to acquire access via leasing or buying. And because of that, most farmers are not going to give you permission yeah. or most landowners are not going to give you permission. Uh, that dries up over time. And then where do, where do people have to go? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a absolute huge concern because I always ask the question to myself, would we be in this state or would we have this problem right now if whitetail bucks only grew to 120 inches they were they all have no. the same rack yeah well i it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be to that extent i wouldn't say yeah you know yeah but there's there's other things too that it's not just one thing yeah. um i'm i don't want to sound like i'm harping on you know the trophy hunters and like i said i am one to a degree yeah so yeah, there's always uh, a bit of like myself being a hypocrite when I talk about some of these problems because I, I do the same thing that I'm kind of complaining about as far as the future uh, of hunting is concerned. And so it's, it's just this ever-evolving opinion that I have of what is what is right and what is wrong for the future of hunting. Yep. It's yeah. same, same here. I yeah. mean, I think if, I think there's, there might be a way that we can have our cake and eat it too, to a degree, mm -hmm. but it's going to require everybody to share more. It's going to require, you know, I mean, say you're a, say you've been doing this for 40 years and you got, you've been saving money your whole life to acquire hunting ground and you've, you've earned that that mm -hmm. and you've got you know six or seven properties that total five thousand acres for example yeah it's like i know that you've spent that time to earn that money and earn that land to some degree but you also got to remember they print more money every day mm -hmm. land is not the same commodity it's not comparable there is only so much of it there's a finite amount yep and humans especially in your lifetime i mean we're all born and gonna die so the people that are close to that land right now either have the opportunity to use it now or never. Yeah. So if you, 
if you can find a way to share more with folks and involve them with what's going on, I think that would be, that would be better off for all of us. Yeah. Um, that's a hard thing for people to swallow, you know, cause I hear that argument. It's like, well, you know, I worked my whole life to buy this property and mm -hmm. I, I, I totally understand and hear where that's coming from. Uh, but you know, there's also people that are nearby that, that could use a place to go shoot a squirrel yep. or that could use, you know, a dough or two in the freezer in the winter. Yeah. Like maybe try to open your doors a little bit to that. Yeah. You don't have to let 20 guys go in there and run every buck off your property. But, you know, if everybody gave a little bit there, then that would help in yeah. the long run, I think. Yeah. Man, it's like I look, I just had this thought pop into my head and like this big buck hunting, you, you can call it a craze, but it, it it's, it's the way it is now, right? It's not necessarily a, a craze anymore. It's just life everybody is chasing the biggest deer and it's almost like we can see that we're going down some kind of a wrong path. Right. But I don't think anybody cares about it. Anybody cares. It's like a drug addict, right? It's just like, I, I need this next drug, AKA this next big buck. And I'm wearing blinders. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't care what's going around on around me. As long as that, that fit, I get that fix every single year. Yeah, dude. I mean, people work their whole year mm -hmm. just to get vacation time to go and do this. Mm -hmm. And you know, they go through the stresses and rigors of life. I get it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I finally got my chance to go and do what I love to do. I'm going to do it. And I don't want to sacrifice any of that because I've already sacrificed so much of my time doing other things just to get to this point. Like it's a, it's a freaking hard problem to solve. Yeah. Yeah. But so as, as that acreage per hunter, let's say goes up and, and then what we see is we see a displacement. So let's just, for example, and I, I've, I've beat this horse to death talking about this, but I feel like it needs to be discussed all the time. And that is I have, um, I live in Southern Iowa. Okay. I, I've hunted my whole life in Southern Iowa. And so what I've seen here is either non-resident landowners come in to this big buck country and they purchase the property and, um, or they have, it doesn't even have to be a non-resident, but oftentimes what happens is if there's a, if there's a, a property with good deer habitat, someone will move in and they will kick everybody else out. Right. Yeah. And so now we have this hunter displacement and where do the hunters go? They try to go anyway, especially in Iowa with limited resources for public ground. Um, they try to go to public ground. And so you're more experienced in this next question. And, and, and that is as your, as your time spent on, you know, all these years you've spent on public ground hunting, have you noticed an uptick in people hunting public ground? Oh yeah. But it just depends on where you're at. Right. Um, you know, in Iowa, definitely, because like you said, it's really limited. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of public land in Iowa. Like there are giant swaths of the state with nothing, right. with n no open access public. Yep. So counties, you entire know, counties. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So you get people traveling from across the state to go and hunt there. And whenever I see them, I mean, it's in Iowa, I don't see it as like a, it hasn't, it hasn't had a tremendous negative impact on our hunting success out there. Uh, we haven't seen that really change a whole lot over the last few years, but we also don't have, I'd say our group and our criteria for success is, is high, but not as, as high as it goes. Right. You know, we're, we're happy with a nice three or four year old buck mm -hmm. if we get a chance at one. And you know, there's some folks that want to shoot nothing but a five year old buck or older and they've got higher criteria and for them, things may have changed a little bit. Right. But I definitely have seen more people in Iowa. I've seen more resident hunters in yeah. Iowa. Uh, and I think the non-resident number of hunters is always capped in, yeah. in Iowa, but I think more of them drawing tags now are going to public than they, than there used to be. Right. I think they used to go to private more, but I mean, the reason why we started hunting public up there was because we couldn't find a place to hunt. Yeah. I was making 20 grand a year and <laughs> trying to pay my rent and I got, I didn't have no money to, to lease a property let alone buy a property right. i was that first year i was in iowa i actually finally got permission to hunt two and a half hours from my house <laughs> and i was driving back and forth down there and then i realized like i got a piece i actually was fortunate enough to have a piece of public like 15 minutes away right so i started going over there and hunting yeah yeah and I, it was just easier and more convenient for me because the access was there but i know a lot of people don't have that yeah but yeah, sorry, it took me a while to answer your question, but yes, definitely seen more, especially resident hunters in Iowa. Yeah. And they all say the same thing. Yeah. Like when you get to talking to them about it, it's like all of them. I, I used to think it was just my story from North coming from Northeast Missouri, yeah. because when I was a kid, I had access to hunt thousands and thousands of acres of private across a bunch of different landowners and a lot of other local people in the community had access to hunt that same property you know it was just a farmer a farming family that would allow a lot of different people to hunt as long as you took care of their property and worked together and didn't cause any problems and it just yeah it was all good and that slowly started drying up as i was going through high school and college and then by the time i got out of college there was very little you know, this basically happened over a 15 year period, if you will. Are you talking and about, I thought that was, are you talking about land sales? Like the landowner passed away or they decided to sell the farm and then it, it went to, a, you know, it changed hands and therefore you weren't able to, to hunt it. Basically all of it, but you basically, yes. Okay. To chalk it up, it was the increased market for recreational hunting land, Got whether it. that's leasing or buying or whatever. All of a sudden, we started seeing people from the city coming up and buying, you know, small farms and properties that were held by local families for, you know, generations. And the farming, farming became, see, that this is, this is a multi-layered issue. Right. It's not just the right. trophy hunting thing. It's like, think about the farming practices in the last 40 years. Right. You know, 40 years ago, you could go down the road, at least where I'm from in rural northeast Missouri, you'd go down the road and you'd see small farm after small farm after small farm. Like, this guy's got 100 acres. He's got some pigs. He's got some cows. He's doing 80 acres of row crop. And they're able to make it work. He's oh, got absolutely. a side job here or there. Nowadays, if you don't have 1,500, 2,000 acres there to row crop farm, most people are not doing it. Right. 
and there's no small livestock operation like there was then it's all big operations so that you know that in itself displaces a lot of people because then you like you said your average uh hunter per acres basically your that's gone up yep well it's the same thing with farming like your average farmer's farming way more oh yeah now that's an issue too that's an that's a i mean that's a big issue like like you said my grandpa i believe in the peak in the peak of his row crop uh years he owned 160 acres and he leased another 80 okay and so 240 uh, of acreage of tillable that and, and he had some hogs and he made yep. And I mean, some hogs, I mean, probably 20, that's it. And he made that work his entire life. And now, so nobody's taken that over for my family, right? It's been, it's been cash rented now. So it's now going to somebody else. And typically what happens is if, and I'll just use this as the example, a non-resident buys a farm. He's going to try to find the biggest farmer in the area to cash rent his crop because he's not he's not going to take the time to go in and be like, hey, are there any locals that need extra ground that would like to cash rent this? Usually it's a big farmer who's already, you know, potentially farming 10,000 acres coming. Yep, I'll, I'll pick it up. I'll pick it up. And so then there's not only the displacement of hunters but there's displacement of all people who use the land including farmers yep. so yeah and that's bigger than the farmers yeah. you know that's that gets into the political things oh, and man. global geopolitical politics uh basically us feeding the world versus feeding our local communities mm-hmm. like this is uh this is extremely complex yeah and there's no there's no like I mean, I know I'm kind of talking crap on trophy hunting a minute ago, but it's not like, okay, if we take away trophy hunting, that solves all the problems. Like, no, not at all. Like, this is a this is a very complex issue Yeah, that we've got to really think through over long periods of time. Yeah. You know, and we always see the errors of our ways way too late in life, right? Especially when um, you have – and I'll, I'll just go back in time to the buffalo, right? We just – slaughtered them okay and so we 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 can now look back and go okay what we did was not not good for the the wildlife in north america hence why we have the the model of conservation that we have today now being able to kind of look back at history and say or or look at europe and say dude it's a it's pay to play over there now you can't you can't there's no public land over there and so my question to you is, do you think there is a course correction that could or needs to be made to balance everything out to where it's it's not so lopsided anymore? Oh, yeah. I think there absolutely something needs to be made, but um, it's just such a it's such a complex problem. Like there's so many different things affect it. You just mentioned the Buffalo, for example, that's another major issue. Mm-hmm. So for example, we have free range and Buffalo herds all over these States. Still, we still have all this native habitat that is essentially getting disturbed for free. Yeah. 
by herds of buffalo. Mm-hmm. And if we man, if we were at the time, if we see, we know a lot more about conservation in the North American model now. But back then, they didn't have, they didn't, yeah. they just slaughtered them, like you said. Yep. If they had that mindset back then, they wouldn't have killed them all. They they would have managed them in such a way that we manage our deer herds and things like that. I'm not saying that's that's like a great perfect answer but it's a hell of a lot better solution than killing them all the way that they did right um so if you if you have that where you have this constant disturbance and you have all these native plants still present instead of just you know just thousands of miles of fescue grass growing everywhere for pasture grass for cows Mm -hmm. you're talking about I mean, you're talking about a, an, an insanely major shift in the amount of usable habitat on the landscape, not just for deer and buffalo, but for every other wild animal that's mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. So that's an issue in itself. You know, as, as far as the access is concerned, if we don't find a way to get more of it and to it, it to at bare minimum secure what we have currently, mm-hmm then it's just going to continue to be more of a problem. Like right. our kids are going to have to deal with it. Their kids, it's going to be even worse. And this is, people shrug it off, but it's something that really bothers me because when you think about it, it was just a couple hundred years ago that all those buffalo got killed. Yeah. Like that's not very long ago. Yeah. A lot of the communities that we live in were established in the mid to late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, we're talking a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. a little over that. That's not that long ago in the grand in the grand scheme of things. Right. And we've seen all these major changes occur just in deer hunting in 30 years. So what do you think is going to happen 30 years from now? Yeah. It's going to be more of the same unless unless we course correct like what you're saying we have to have more access for people yeah we've got to share more another with the the fellow man and i i'm a big believer in habitat yeah uh wildlife habitat and native wildlife habitat and basically creating securing protecting as much of that as we possibly can all right so let's i'm gonna throw a hypothetical out here whose responsibility do you think that should be is that for the landowner to be responsible to provide access to other people, or is that the state, uh, the state, <laughs> offering programs that allow landowners to uh, benefit some way, shape, or form from allowing access, hunting access on their property? The the best way is probably for all the landowners to get on the same page and them do that independently than to involve the government. Right. But is that going to happen? Probably not because of this things we've already talked about. It's like, well, landowner A has worked their whole life to have this land. Landowner B has worked their whole life to have this land. And the price keeps going up. So it's like these people got to work even harder, got to sacrifice even more to get land. Yeah. Are they going to want to just... And that's the thing with the with the states. I, I mean, I love what a lot of the agencies do with the habitat that they are in charge of. Right. They do. Most of them get a bad rap from the general public, but I've met a lot of the guys that work on these places that are just like me and you. Mm-hmm. They're just your average hunters. They make an average. 
income every year and that's all they care about doing is making wildlife habitat i can't tell you how many of those guys i've met across the country that work for the state department and those guys are those guys are part of the government so i don't want to just you know crap on the government but there's the majority the wide ranging majority of land is privately owned yeah like uh, unless you go out west yeah. But if we're talking whitetails and eastern turkeys, for example, I mean, I don't know, what is Iowa? Like less than 90 two. some percent? Yeah, it's yeah. it's less than 2% public. So it's 90, yeah. 98 or 99% private. So then the question becomes, how is the state government even going to compete in the land, in the recreational land market? Yeah. So they can, they can lease land, and I'm all, like, I support uh, state uh land leasing projects like the walk-in areas and stuff that iowa has and kansas has and missouri's got some recreational mrap is what it's called yep recreational access programs i'm all for those but the problem is is can the state compete with the land market that's out there because if if a farmer can get more money for leasing it to a deer hunter or for just selling it outright for recreational hunting land to a private buyer why what's the incentive for them to get paid by the state to let everybody and their dog come on their land yeah yeah man so many things to think about right (laughs) yeah and it's like i I heard a really good um clip from a another uh podcast that's come out and they're saying that because crp is a federal program to those who are enrolled in crp programs don't you think that, you know, we're paying you to plant certain types of vegetation on your property? Don't you think that that should also be accessed because it's a federal program for other people to enjoy your property? And so the the guy that I heard, he pretty much said, uh, then I just wouldn't put my farm in CRP anymore. Right. right. And so there goes, I'm guessing that person would still do the habitat work, but they would just not collect the money because they're looking for, everybody's looking for ways to, uh, uh, and any, any real estate land company is going to say, Hey, here's this property for sale. And here's how much money you can make off of it uh, every year. Right. From the investment side of things. And so the second you take that out, if, if, deer hunters or if the landowner wants to make money off it they'll go to outfitting they'll go to leasing they'll go to some other way to make their money off of that property right other than a a federal program yeah that's what that's what most of them are going to say yeah you know and like like i said before it's hard for me to blame them in their situation but the only solution that i see and i i mean I don't have all the answers, definitely. Mm-hmm. So don't take this as gospel or whatever. The only, but the only solution I see, and I'm plenty open to changing my mind on this, but if we need a shift in hunting culture. We need a shift in our culture, <laughs> um, which is an extreme uphill battle, you know. But that's basically the way that we've gone in the last 30 years has shifted our culture to want and desire these things, which drive that price up, mm-hmm. which eliminate access. The, the, the positives of that is that one, one positive that I've seen 
what goes back to the habitat thing. It's like more and more of these private landowners are getting educated about habitat conversion and all this stuff that's good for wildlife. And there are some government programs that actually pay them to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it, those are a win-win. Um, the only, the, the major disadvantage though, is that they're creating habitat for one mm -hmm. person, you know, yeah. where, yeah, I mean, that, that's where I think if we shifted our culture a little bit away from that to sharing more, then we we would be better off in the long run. And there's other things that the agency agencies or the governments can do that could help that. Yeah. And that opens up another total can of worms, which I'm sure you're probably fixing to ask here about here in a minute. Well, well, <laughs> we, you know, when, whenever whenever you say culture the first thing that pops up is social media, right? Yeah. And so yeah. imagine, okay, we probably know a lot of the same people. So let's let's have this pretend conversation where Aaron Warbritton goes up to a guy who manages his property for big bucks. And you're trying to explain to him that the greater good is to let people come and hunt your property. Somebody, not not just maybe it's nobody or it's somebody, right? Do you think that that person or anybody would be open to saying, "Oh man, big bucks are awesome, but they're but the the future of hunting is." I mean, long story short, do you think enough people even care? Uh, the uh, the in the circles that you and I are in. <laughs> No, <laughs> probably not. No, um, probably not. But they have a. There's a lot of them that have a very different opinion about this than yeah. I have. Yeah, you know, and like I said, I don't know that I'm. I don't know that I'm 100 right. I'm open to changing my mind about it, but I don't. I don't see that happening. Yeah, you know, and and not just that, but if if we got rid of scoring deer entirely, that might help. Yeah, because um, then it put it doesn't put a number on things. But see, we went from scoring deer, then we went to aging deer, mm -hmm. and now I that's the number that we're all chasing. Listen, aging deer to me is a mask term for people who want bigger antlers, because obviously, yep. obviously, the older a deer gets, right? And so the shift has been, oh, I, I'm not really interested, and my dumbass has said this before. I'm not really interested in big antler deer i'm interested in older age class deer i think I've that i think that's thing. i think that's I mean, a, I just a cop said out a while ago yeah i think that's a <laughs> yeah. cop out but you know why we say that mm -hmm. is because we've grown up in this culture right right and we we've came about hunting that way but that's why i have to i, I have to rewire my brain sometimes and whenever i talk to people about hunting i i always try to keep that perspective i had when i was 10 or 11 years old mm -hmm. i mean it's hard for me to do because i like i said before like hunting mature bucks but when i was 10 or 11 years old it was just about the experience itself mm -hmm. it was like these animals are freaking awesome i know that i love hunting them i know that i love the animal you know i want there to be more of them and i want to you know, had the excitement of the hunt yeah. and there were, it wasn't any deeper than that. It didn't go, it didn't go into these levels of 
score and age and all that stuff. It just, it was just solely based on the experience of that. Yeah. And then when we killed a deer, you know, you take it back to deer camp and then, you know, your mentors, my dad, my uncles show us how to cook deer meat over a fire or whatever. It's like, that's freaking awesome. And that is the stuff that stuff right there has been around for thousands of years. Yeah. But the, the other things that we're talking about here have just come along. Right. Like in our culture. And that's why it's, that's why it's hard for you and I to even not talk about, like if I, if somebody calls me and asks me how big of a buck I saw was, I'm going to tell them based on the age or the score of the deer. Yep. Because that's what I've learned. Mm Mm-hmm to do over the last 20 some years. Yeah. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a good thing long-term. Yeah, man. Imagine trying to break those habits. Like, yeah. Hey Dan, what'd you see tonight? I saw a buck. He had 10 points. Yep. But that's what it was back in the 80s. Yeah. I saw a 10 pointer. Early early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then, and then, so you kind of, you kind of like, I always think about this. I've had a conversation, well, I've tried to, and then it, it just, it didn't work out. I, I, I really want this conversation though. And I, I, I said in a podcast, I think that scoring deer is a problem, right? Well, I had someone from Boone and Crockett reach out to me who listens to the Nine Finger Chronicles and say, uh, you're wrong and here's why. And so I never, I've never had the opportunity to follow up with that but it's something that is on my goal my my piece of paper that i keep over here to have that conversation because i'm sure that boone and crockett was started for a good reason but now but now people use boone and crockett as a ranking system for how bad of a ass of a hunter i am yeah, and there's a lot of good people that work there oh, yeah. too. And like, yep. if if somebody hears that that works there, they immediately feel like defensive about it right. because that's who, you know, that's their livelihood or that's what they do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they were bad people for talking about it necessarily. Yeah. But that's why it's that's why it takes difficult conversations. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I like I said, I don't know that I have all the answers, but and at, at the time, you just alluded to it. You don't know what you're doing at that moment in time. You're right. trying to, everybody that, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people that go down these roads, they're doing it for a genuine good reason at the time. Right. And nobody has a crystal ball to see what the hell is going to happen in 20 or 30 years. Right. So it's it's easy to sit back and armchair quarterback and blame people for doing things 20 and 30 years ago. But like, I look at the real tree monster bucks videos, for example, when they started coming out with the deer score on their videos, like every deer that was killed, they showed the score. Mm -hmm. We thought that was the coolest thing ever. Absolutely. We're like, that's, that's never been done before. Nobody's ever like, they're making a video about these huge bucks. And now you can actually see what the deer measures and all that. Yeah. And th- they weren't doing that to try to ruin the future of hunting. That's that's ridiculous. Right. They're not. Though I mean, I know those guys. Yeah. Most of them are great people. Yeah. So, like I said, it's and it's not their fault. It's just it's the progression that we've taken. Yeah. And I think it's important that we're all aware of that yeah. and how we how we got here. 
Yeah. But if the if you stick to the basic fundamentals of why we hunt, the basic principles, they've always been there. Yeah. They've ne they never have changed. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're still there even in the guys that are hardcore trophy hunters that are huge land managers like what you're saying. I've had long conversations with them and got their stories about, you know, where they came from and how they got their start in hunting. We're all pretty similar. Yep. Yeah. And they hunt because a deer shows up and their heart gets to pounding and they like to eat deer meat and they like to spend time with their friends and their family in the woods. It's like all these things are the same. And I think that's where if we focus our hunting culture on those things yeah. and not the negative side, then we have then all of a sudden we all have this common thread. We all have this yeah. common ground um that we can come back to. Yeah. Yeah. I got to I got to talk about I got to talk about trail cameras for a second because Dude, I knew that's yeah. what I said. I was like crossbows and trail cameras are coming up <laughs> and we're going to have to get into that. I'm I'm not I'm I'm not as terribly concerned in this top this conversation about weapons per se because I because I do feel that access is it, it trumps that. Okay? Yep. But what I will talk about trail cameras is my own experience. And the first trail camera that I ever had, right? These big mole trees with the huge C batteries in them. I mean, they weighed like about what a VCR would weigh. And then the funny part was when you would get those trail cameras, they came with two mini bungee cords. And if the tree wasn't the right size, you either had to wrap them around a couple times or it would sag on the tree. And you had to find creative ways to tighten that up. Anyway. The whole point of this conversation now is like, I changed when I got my first trail camera. And do you know why I changed? It's because I got to see everything that I couldn't see anymore. And my, my goals changed once I got trail cameras. And that, my friends, is when I started hunting older age class, bigger antlered deer is when I because bef, I'm trying to think of life before that dude anything that walked by I was trying to shoot and I didn't do a very good job at it um, my, the first buck I ever shot came first deer I ever shot with a bow uh, I think it was a doe yeah I shot a doe first and then I sh no I shot a, a buck came by and I was like okay well, that's a small buck like a really small buck but here's a doe shot the doe right and now i feel like trail cameras have changed me so much that i don't even want to shoot does anymore because i feel that I, if i shoot a doe i'm going to ruin or that buck is going to see me and it's going to i'm going to i'm going to get busted by this buck and then he's gone for a period of time and so i feel that the biggest impact in any type of technology uh, advancement has been the trail camera that that to me has uh not only for me but i feel has had the biggest cultural impact on hunting in north america what oh are, yeah what are your thoughts on that oh yeah 100 percent. and like it's 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 gotten to the point now with these cell cameras where i mean most adults know that these these cell phones here they're a program to addict you mm -hmm. 
social media is programmed to addict you to it. Yes. Now you have a cellular trail camera that's connected to your cell phone that you already, the majority of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, already are addicted to these damn things. Yep. Now we have a pictures of our trail camera giving us notifications at all hours of the night and hours of the day. And we're so much connected to our technology that's out there that it's it's just the this direction is not good right it isn't but it, i mean it's not just the cellular trail camera it's also the cell phone it's also the social media yeah. algorithms and the artificial intelligence and you know you go down the damn rabbit hole with all that yeah but yeah i mean when when cameras, like you said, you didn't know where that big buck was. Mm -hmm. You didn't know if the big buck was even there. Because how many times do you actually lay eyes on them in a given year? Right. You know, most of the time it ain't very much nope. if they're really big one. You might be able to catch some sign or a track or something here. But now that you actually have an image of them, I bet you anymore, the majority of the big, like, five-year-old bucks that are killed – the majority of them have walked in front of a trail camera oh, yeah. and probably multiple trail cameras by multiple hunters. Right. Like I've noticed that about hunting public land. If there's a really big deer using that public land, people come out of the woodwork because they all know about him mm -hmm. because they all have pictures of him in those woods. Right. And with the, with the cell cams, it's been, you know, before I saw a lot of trail cameras on public land, but since the cell cams became affordable, not a couple years ago when they were expensive, but just in the last two years when they've become affordable, there are cell cameras all over public land. They're, they're all over, period. They're, they're all, all over, over period, period, because people don't have to go to check them. Mm -mm. They, all they have to do is put lithium batteries in, in it, and if they purchase a good one that's got good battery life, they can go. And, I mean, why wouldn't you do this if you're yeah. wanting to be successful? This is a great way to be successful. Mm -hmm. Take your camera and put it in that secure location, and you don't have to go back there to check it. Yeah, That's why I, that's why, what kept me from putting cameras in bedding areas before mm. was, well, I can't, I can't walk in there every two weeks or I'm going to spook everything out of it. Man, such now you point. can put it right there. And it just sits there all fall and tells you what's coming and going. Yeah. Here's a dilemma that I ran into. Well, it it was a dilemma until I actually did it. Okay. And so I have uh, on one of my farms, I have, there's two pinch points. And I got uh, a couple tree stands set up in this one pinch point that, I mean, it's money. Okay. Well, and the other pinch point, I have a cell camera. And I have some cell cameras. And... I got a, I got a ping while I'm in the tree stand. So of course I look at my phone and it's a buck. He's a good buck, but he's not a shooter. All right. He's a three-year-old. Um, this is private ground. I know what else is running around there. So I said to myself, okay, I'm going to rattle and I'm going to see if this buck who I haven't even seen yet, just trail camera pictures of him comes in, put the horns together and he came within shooting range and I felt gross me personally, I, I I felt like, would I have rattled if that buck didn't show up on trail camera to, you know, have him come in? No, probably not. I would have sat, I just would have sat there. So now it's like, I'd love having trail cameras because I am an hour and a half to three hours away from some of my farms. And 
when I'm in the tree stand and I get pictures of them, I'm just like, God, I haven't had, I haven't had this happen yet, but a shooter walk in front of a trail camera, rattle, grunt, blind grunt, and they come in and you shoot them based off of information that's 500 yards away that you would have never seen anyway. And there's examples of that on the internet, right? Oh, I got a cell cam. Let's run down to the bottom of the hill. Got the rifle, boom, shot him, dead deer, you know, 15 minute period. And so for me, I, I, I think that's ugly. I don't want to, I hope that never happens to me. I hope I'm never in the dilemma where I have to be put to that test, but I feel like it's inevitable given the, oh, yeah. te- given the technology that we use. I mean, just think about, look, I talked to a lot of those, uh, you were talking about industry personalities mm-hmm. a while ago and the different guys that own big land and stuff. I've talked to them personally about how their hunting strategies have changed in the last two decades. Yeah. You know, they used to hunt out of tree stands, heavy tree stands that were not easy to move around. They weren't mobile. It, they had to pack them back deep into the woods and set up based on sign. Now they are sitting on food plots in very expensive box blinds that are designed to contain your scent where there is a device in front of them that is texting them the daily occurrences of that food plot. You know, and they they have these various properties and they wait until they get a buck that's big enough or old enough or whatever the criteria is on that camera at that food plot and they systematically go in there and kill those deer over those spots. And that's all that, that number one, that is them accruing that much knowledge over the years. So I'm not, I'm not going to take that away from anybody, but it's also because of our advances in technology. Mm-hmm. And this is all things we got to remember this in the grand scheme of things. This is all stuff that has just happened. Oh yeah. yeah. Like this is, this is stuff that the world population is just dealing with now mm-hmm. on especially at this rampant pace that we're at with technology we're just dealing with this in the last few decades yeah do you feel you know, do you feel that technology and culture then changes the definition of what hunting actually is i don't know that it I st- like I said, the, the positive thing is that we still have our innate um, similarities to why we hunt. Mm-hmm. Like Most people I talk to, no matter where they're from or, or what style they like to hunt, they all share those common things. And the, heck, the Indians thousands of years ago had those same common things. Like, I, I have hope for that to continue. Yeah. Um, as, long as, we, as long as we continue to talk about it. That's and to show it in content and and I think that is that's kind of in our DNA yeah. as human beings almost. Yeah. But the other aspect of it I definitely worry about because I mean we've already discussed in this podcast of all the different ways that we've individually got off track away from that over the years. Yeah. yeah. And I hell, I'm aware that it's there and I'm still Yeah you know, pulled in that direction. Cause I use cameras. I mean, I'm, I love checking trail camera. Like I'm addicted to this dang phone and waking <laughs> up in the morning and looking at the trail camera pictures on it. Right. 
Right. Um, but I don't know that that's a good thing for our brains. Right. You know, I, I and and the more the more stuff that you add to this, the easier hunting becomes. Mm-hmm. And we were talking initially about how we're trying to make things challenging for our kids to get them involved in hunting. But then we, as we get older and more experienced, are trying to make things easier. Yeah. By adopting all these technologies. It's like, well, maybe maybe it ain't such a bad thing to make hunting hard again to some degree. Yeah. I'm not talking about going back to making your own stick bow out of the woods behind your house. But there's got to be a little bit of give and take there. Yeah. Man, it's, I mean, because obviously with the introduction of trail cameras, with the introduction of high-speed crossbows, rif- just rifling in general, bullets, ammunition, anything, right? Any weapon. Dude, Jake's got a muzzleloader now that will kill a deer at like 1,000 yards. It is freaking insane. That I mean, nuts. I think it's really cool, but yeah. I'm also kind of worried about it. Yeah. You know, oh, <laughs> I mean, we went from having a muzzleloader with a cap and ball that you'd be lucky to kill something at 50 yards with. And now we're looking at, we're looking at a high powered rifle essentially. Yeah, man. All right. So we, we've talked a lot about these, these almost negative things, right? All the, all the bad things that have could, that have changed the culture that have changed the way we define hunting. What's what's a couple things that may be a silver lining or uh, a positive ending to this conversation? Well, at, social media gets uh, a lot of criticism for good reason on a lot of things, but one thing that it one thing it does give us the opportunity to do is to to talk to young people, yeah, and to engage with young people, which. You know, as hunter numbers were um, dropping off for a lot of these agencies, you know, in the 2000s and whatnot, they didn't have access to that as much. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I watched the Outdoor Channel and TNN Outdoors and things like that. But now we have the ability to put our hunting culture in front of a lot of young people. Right. And I'm not so much worried about turning them into hunters as I am them understanding what hunting is yes, and why we do it. And I, I feel like if, if the message of conservation, if the message of why we hunt those innate things that we talked about a while ago, just the basic principles we can all agree on. If those messages are permeated through social media and reach a lot of the population that we wouldn't have been able to reach in the last generation, that could be a positive thing. Yeah. And, and then, also do that without getting in our own way. Yeah. And I say that because I feel that the biggest enemy of hunters are hunters in a, in a certain way, like the infighting that happens, like us, like you can't even post a picture of an antler that you found, let's say shed hunting. You can't even post a picture of it without someone saying, what game farm did you get that from? Or, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great deer, but you shot it with this. Man. Yeah, dude, people are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to hate some of the things that I said. Yep. I mean, there's going to be hunters that Mm -hmm. hear the stuff that I said and that completely disagree with me. Right. 
But what I want you to focus on, if you take nothing away from this whole conversation, is like we are likely the same in a lot of ways. Yeah, look for the We're similarities. We're likely, yeah. yes, we have all these innate similarities. And if we stay on that, if we stay focused on that, and we talk about those things, and we show those things, yeah. then that that becomes more ingrained in our culture. And it seems like that would be an easy thing to do because we all share those similarities, but we all seem, instead of focusing on those similarities, we all want to pick at the difference. Yeah. You yeah. know, and and then fight over that difference, whatever that is. Yeah. Like you said, the, the game farm and the shed antler thing. Yeah, like, why are you out there doing that? in the very first place like what is the reason you're doing that yeah let's talk about that yeah that's a great point it just i i i i feel like i'm continuous i'm, I'm continuing to become a hypocrite in in my thoughts towards hunting because you know in the past i've voiced my opinions on crossbows but at the same time i don't want to limit somebody who only shoots a crossbow you know what i mean like i think there's times and places for everything and which long story short i i continue to reevaluate my thought on certain things almost on the daily right and so it's it's an ever-changing internal conversation that i have of is my thought is my thought process right like am i am i making a decision on on a certain topic based off of my own selfishness or is it for the greater good of, of hunting and that that to me is ever changing oh yeah i'm in the same boat 100 percent yeah and yeah the crossbow thing is i'm um, I totally agree on that yeah so well Man, we've uh, we've been at it for a while now, and, and I feel like this was an excellent conversation, a great way to kick off 2024. Um, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this, man, and good luck the rest of the season, whatever's left of it. Thanks, man. No problem at all. Happy to do it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout-out to Aaron. Huge shout-out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen to the nine finger chronicles huge shout out to tethered wasp vortex code blue woodman's pal huntworth and of course full sneak gear please go out and support the companies that support this podcast and last but not least good vibes man be kind to each other and uh have a good day <laughs>